Good morning, everyone. Happy to stand here behind this music stand. I'm not going to sing. <laughs> You'll remember last time I was up here four or five years ago, I had to put the thing on my feet in order to get at the right angle because it wasn't adjustable. And I was very perturbed. I'm perturbed today. Welcome back, uh, campers. Matt's a camper this week, too, I understand. Where'd he go? Oh. Uh, my name is Steve Fretwell. Um, I'm not one of the pastors, but um, I'm sure you figured that out because my shirt is tucked in. Uh, I know that it's a generational thing and not a pastoral thing because uh, everybody up here had their shirt tucked, untucked as well. But I'm old school, I guess, um, an old da- dog, as you say, and I, have a- I use AOL as well. And I have, a, I have a paper calendar that I carry in my pocket, too. I've been at meetings where everyone gets their phones out when we're trying to schedule another meeting, and I get mine out. And, but I like to see the whole mud advance, right? There's something nice about that. Also, I don't like new things. But I've learned a lot from Pastor Matt over the last five-plus years, uh, as you have as well, and I, I enjoy his company so much and enjoy hearing him, him preach. Uh, for instance... One of the things I've learned are some fresh new words or phrases, and one is uh, dumpster fire, another is couchy. I asked him when he went camping that the couch fit on top of his car. The great indoors, and more recently, omni shambles. Do you remember that three weeks ago? I looked it up and discovered it's uh, it's been around for over 100 years, but I've never seen it before. The synonym that I use is havoc, which is a, comes off the tongue a little faster and easier. My favorite word, though, from Matt's sermons is unpack. And I'm so used to it now because he's been doing it for five years. You know, unpack this, unpack that. And I'd never used, I'd never used it that way before. But it's certainly a terrific metaphor. When I was uh, asked earlier if I would fill in for Matt, uh, since he's going to be out of town, even though he's here today, uh, I told him that I would agree to do that, and I opened my Bible to see what was in store for me and thought, yikes. And Darren read 10 times more than we're going to cover today. I told Matt this morning that he's going to be responsible next week because I'm going out of town. Um, <laughs> as those who regularly attend First Baptist Church, I know that you know that it is our practice to go through a book of the Bible at this part of the service. And we do this normally line by line so that we can learn from God. We hold a high view of Scripture, which I think is important. It's one of the things that drew me to First Baptist Church or to any Baptist church because they have a high view of Scripture. And that was important to me when I became a Christian. Also, that we can learn about eternal truths that would be beyond our understanding if it were not for the special revelation of God. There's some things that we can't know. We live in an unseen reality, and the Bible helps to inform and edify us. Anyway, I turned to John 19, 28 and following and was not surprised to find a treasure chest full of potential sermon material. Now, anyone who's been uh, in Sunday school with me, we, we spent five years in the book of John. <laughs> and when I looked at the potential in these scriptures, I said to myself, well, gee, we could talk about the Sabbath, the Passover, more prophecies, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, and it was endless, and I couldn't imagine doing that in one sermon, and I'm not. <laughs> I wrote a sermon out, and then yesterday I did it all over again. And at 11.59 last night, I gave it to my wife to read. And she was in the bathroom forever reading it. And before I uh, finish my thought, I should pray. <laughs> Some people really get OCD if we don't pray at this point. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for bringing us here and that we are a family uh, brought, brought, bought and paid for by your blood and encouraged by your resurrection. Help me to uh, be modest in what I have to say and to be trusting the Holy Spirit and use uh, the words of John and, and my words to touch each person, each in a different way probably. And Lord, I am thankful that most people don't remember what I say. Uh, 
and, but will hear the things that they need to say because our minds wander. So be with us now as we, as we continue in the service and just be with me as well and hide my personality to some extent and, and keep my cough down. And I, I ask these things for all of us in Jesus' name, who we love and serve. Amen. Debbie came out of the bathroom and she said, uh, she said, I left me, you left too much in the suitcase. Okay, unpacking the suitcase, you know, keeping the metaphor, she was keeping the metaphor. I left too much in the suitcase. And I said, like Pilate, what I have written, I have written. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll know why. I I texted Lee, our pastor Lee, who's now in Louisiana. I I texted him last night at one, one in the morning and asked him a question. I said, I hope you're not awake. I didn't want to annoy you, but I need to clarify something because Debbie and I had a disagreement about something that I had written. And you'll see what that is in a while. Uh, so, turn with me to John 19.28. For those who, are, who don't have Bibles, there are Bibles under your seats in front of you. Uh, there are no iPhones there, though, so... The, the words aren't going to be on the screen because I told Ian when he told, he told me that he was going to be out of town. And I said, well, don't worry about slides. I won't know what I need until too late to have them. Uh, so verse 28 reads, Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Okay, so we're going to stop there. Pastor Matt last week, if you were here, did a, an om, an on him. Awesome, I was going to say ominous, awesome job summarizing the significance of the Messianic prophecies. Uh, He pointed us back to Isaiah 55 and Psalm 22, which are some of the clearest uh, and fun prophecies to read because they're long. And in fact, um, I I believe that they're worth looking at all the time because they're so thrilling and encouraging. Both are filled with clear details. Some of the prophecies in the Old Testament are somewhat obscure and you kind of wonder, why would that be a prophecy? You know, you have to trust uh, scholars. They know more than what, what I know, of course. There's a very wonderful, uh, the, the I am thirsty phrase could be referring to Psalm 22 because in the verse 15 of 22, it reads that my tongue cleaves to my jaws. But if you look at other Psalms, you'll find that in Psalm 38 and in Psalm 69, it could be referring there as well. So, There's a wonderful richness um, in prophecy. There's also a very familiar and wonderful account in the Gospel of Luke that I think Matt might have mentioned, but I don't remember uh, to my point earlier. Matt might have, but we often use the the shorthand to reference it, and it's the Emmaus Road. And you probably are familiar with that. That's when Jesus is back from the grave. He was resurrected, and he was walking with a couple disciples. One is unnamed, the other one is Cleopas. And they're, they're disheartened because they feel that the crucifixion was, was not a victory, but a defeat. Obviously, we would have thought the same thing. He walked and talked, and <clears throat> and if I read, let's see, read verse 27, it goes, And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And I highlighted all. Keep in mind that Jesus is always talking about the Old Testament because that was the scriptures for the Jews. So everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, points to the cross. And that's what makes it so fascinating. When I was younger in high school, before I became a Christian, I was given a New Testament. Uh, I don't know from what organization, but you know, those things get handed out once in a while. And it didn't have the Old Testament attached. And now that I, as I got older, I realized, boy, they have to be together. The Old Testament is, is pointing to the New Testament, and the New Testament is defined a lot and explained a lot by the Old Testament. So we need to look at both. And I know that all of us, when we read through the Bible, you get hampered by the Old Testament. I'd hate to admit it, but it's true that I've never, ever made it all the way through the Bible whenever we've had a reading effort. Does that make anybody comfortable? <laughs> I know a lot about the Bible, and I know a lot of addresses. I don't know a lot of uh, house numbers. Uh, I know the neighborhoods, I guess, in the Bible. But in the Testament, believe it or not, there are over 300 prophecies. 
and foreshadowings or types about the Jewish Messiah, and they encompass a wide range of subjects, and it's, it's pretty interesting. Stated broadly, we can say that the Messiah's birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection are highlighted. But if you, if you hone in and look at things narrowly, you will see these things. You'll see his preexistence, his incarnation, the timing of his arrival, his genealogy, the events of his ministry, the miracles, his provision of salvation, his betrayal and his abandonment, his being despised and rejected, his suffering, his crucifixion, and even uh, details of his gravesite. And you think, wow, how could anybody in the Jewish faith not believe in Jesus as the Messiah? Because that sounds exactly like the New Testament gospel, doesn't it? All those, all those subjects are covered. In the book, uh, Science Speaks, an academic named Peter, Peter Stoner back, this is, this is 1973 probably, he uh, calculated that the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of these least obscure uh, prophecies, just eight of the 300, the probability was one in 10 to the 17th power, which means one with 17 zeros. That really doesn't mean anything to me. You know, the, you've, you've probably read about the James Webb Telescope that's out in space right now. It's going around the sun, and it's viewing things that are 4.5, they say, I don't know how they can be so exact, 4.5 billion light years away. And I heard one, read one a woman astronomer say, well, she actually wrote it, she said, it almost makes me want to worship that which created this. And I don't know her, but I'd be like Paul looking at the, the altar to the unknown God. You know, she, she sees the beauty and the, and the, the, the great design, and it goes on, we think, for infinity, but it doesn't because God is outside that. That blows my mind. But Stoner knew that we couldn't envision 10 to the 17th power, so he tried to help us, but it doesn't help me. He said, pretend or imagine covering the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet high. And then find a volunteer, blindfold them, put them in the state, have them wander around and find one silver dollar with an X on it on the first try. That's what 10 to the 17th power is. He also talks about if you put molecules in the state of Texas three feet high, and then it's, it's a bigger number. But I have to say, as a visual aid, it is not very helpful. <laughs> if he did all 300 prophecies, uh, I think I'd get brain freeze, and I think you would too as well. But anyway, I love that kind of stuff because it gives me confidence in the Bible. And that's not only that. It's uh, many, many things if if, when you study it. As an aside, when I became a Christian uh, 55 years ago, my first thrill, I remember, because I, I was going to a church, but I wasn't a Christian, and I became a Christian uh, by going to Campus Crusade in Chicago when I was 17, and I was going there for a road trip with a friend, thinking, well, it'd be fun to be away from the parents and, you know, just have a good time. Turned out to be an experience that is the highlight of my life, and I became a Christian there and was around lots of people who were not abnormal. And started going to a worship service in people's backyards in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we had a band, and the late great planet Earth was being distributed. Everybody was reading it. And it's about, it's about prophecy, and it was so fascinating, and I couldn't get enough of that. And it's also about the end times. So I was immersed in it and loved it. I don't focus so much on that anymore, the end times, because nobody really knows, not even Jesus. So I put that aside. And if you're into that, put it aside. <laughs> about, anyway, many of you boomers may be familiar with the book. I saw some people nod. But I read, read about it this week. I was looking it up to see if I had the title right and the, and the author's name. And I, it said that the New York Times declared that this book was the number one nonfiction book for the whole decade of the 70s. Isn't that bizarre? People really had, you know, really had an appetite. Okay, the next verse we read, verse 30a, and I hate to disappoint you, that's the last verse we're going to look at. So Darren wasted his breath. I guess I don't have it written down. Okay. 
When he had received, nope, excuse me, yeah, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Said it is finished with an exclamation point in John. But in the other, in the other Gospels, they, they, don't refer, they don't reference it is finished exactly. They talk about the words that he spoke, and then he, and then he bowed his head, gave up his spirit and bowed his head. But they say he cried out, cried out with, cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And I love that, and that's what my focus is going to be mostly tonight, this morning. Excuse me, I got, didn't want to scare you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it is finished. These words, if they were substitutes, other English words, they would mean it is completed, it is paid in full, it is accomplished, it is perfected. For most of us, these words are never uttered in our own lives. Most of the time, we're like hamsters on a wheel or Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. I had a bookkeeper, and I always told her that I coveted her job because at the end of the day, she didn't have anything in her in-basket or out-basket because she had to balance and she put everything in the fire, fire file. And all I ever got was stuff in my in-basket, and I didn't even have an out-basket because I was the boss. So it just, it was relentless. So it is finished would have been great. It is finished. It is finished. Finally, it's finished. I'm retired now, and I still have to be the landlord, so it's still not finished. Anyway, I had a, a, a next-door neighbor once here in Benicia who told me that his mother told him when he was a boy that the word life is Latin for maintenance. And he didn't know if it was true or not. He didn't think it was true, but he told me that, and we both understood. Uh, I got the point. One day he was mowing his lawn and he looked over at me over my driveway and because of the noise of his lawnmower, he mouthed the words, life, right? Life. And I smiled because we had that more than all knew. Everything we did was maintenance. As adults, we understand this more than children. Leaves, I wrote down, leaves fall, this could be a poem. Leaves fall, grass grows, paint fades, Knee joints wear out. That's brand new. That's just yesterday for me. <laughs> Metal rusts. Dust collects. Odometers turn. A friend wounds or becomes distant. And I know that each of you could add more to that list. It, it could be the whole service, just talking about the things that you have to maintain. Now, possessions and relationships both need constant attention. But, of course, in Jesus' economy, relationships are more important. And I was, I was thinking this morning, I put a note in my, in my, on my paper when I woke up this morning uh, because Lee had woken, awakened me at 5.30 with his response. Uh, I said to myself, men prefer to work on stuff rather than relationships. Every man that I know would rather be under the hood of his car or mowing the lawn or on the roof or taking, the, you know, whatever, instead of, hey, do you want to go to a dinner at church tonight? Or do you want to go to a small group? Or do you want to uh, call somebody because they're really hurting or they, they're leaving the church over some re for some reason? Nobody wants to do that. They'd rather do stuff with things because they don't talk back. Right? I mean, it, is that true? Is there any man here who doesn't think that's true? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand. Just say, shout out. <laughs> well, I'm that way too. I, my first reaction to everything we do is no. And Debbie knows that, and she'll kindly remind me as it gets closer. Remember, we have to go to your mom's for dinner, right? Oh, you know, it's always a burden. And even if I have all day to paint a room, it's still not enough time if you have to go somewhere. It's hilarious. Anyway, that's how men are. Now, I wrote that uh, these, these couplets, effort and exertion, Intentionality and regularity, time, and usually money are always necessary. And as needs, they are never-ending, never finished. It is exhausting just to write this sentence. In fact, when I came in this morning, I, I never can see the go because I sit in the front and it's below the person in front of me. So I don't have to go, I just look at the others. <laughs> but I learned a long time ago, a long time ago, um, 
that the word actually in the Greek, in the tense, scholars tell me, it's not go, but it's as you go, while going. And it changed my whole life. Because I no longer was afraid of God sending me to some backwater place. Instead, he was telling me that wherever you are is a location, is a neighborhood, is a place. And every place is someplace, and every someplace is a mission field. And so it's while we go, as we go. You need to have the lenses of Christ on no matter what you do. If you're interacting with a waitress or somebody at, um, on the, you know, I, Debbie says, God, you're the friendliest person I know. She hates walking with me because I talk to everybody. <laughs> and if Peter Knott were here, I don't know if he is, he walks with me and he always, he always says, I don't know how you do that. He says, I'm like this, you know. <laughs> everybody, stay away from me. But I've learned, I've learned how to be outgoing even though I'm not an outgoing person by nature. Every, every place is a mission field. Actually, I wrote, there are some human endeavors that could be described by such an ex- exclamation as it is finished. And I wrote several, but the one I want to say, Debbie made this declaration after going water skiing for the first time. It is finished. She never has to do it again. <laughs> and she never has. It's pretty funny. She does that about a lot of things. Uh, but in all seriousness, it is finished. It is finished might be the greatest exclamation that Jesus ever uttered, ever, ever shouted out. Uh, Matt and I were communicating yesterday, and I asked him, should uh, I use the Greek word? Because people does sometimes use the Greek word. In Sunday school, we use it a lot because it's a different environment. And he said, yeah, he said people would probably like that. And so how do you pronounce it? Because I've always said ecclesia, and he says it's ecclesia. See, I have... I'm, I'm, I told him, I said, you know, when you were born, I've been, I was at the church for 11 years. And so keep your, keep your pronunciations to yourself. So it's tetelestai. Tetelestai is what he shouted out. It's one Greek word, and our English words are three. And if, if the phrase short and sweet has any application, it is surely here. Bible scholars and commentators are in agreement that Jesus' cry is a declaration of the divine Redeemer, that all that he had left heaven to do on earth had been completed finally. Completely, finally, perfectly done. Arthur Pink, who is not a name you'll probably know, but he, he wrote uh, back when I was a kid, and I guess, in his exposition of John's Gospel, it's three books, and that gives you some hint as to why it takes so long to go through it. You know, he's got three 400-page books on it. Uh, which I relished when I read. I like to read, so I, I know not everybody's a reader. But he writes this, and it's, in, it's kind of an older language. Eternity, he's, he's using hyperbole here, kind of like John does at the end of his gospel, where he said the world itself would not contain all of the books that would have to be written to contain all that Jesus did, right? Well, that's certainly hyperbole, you know, because it's a big earth. But he writes, eternity will be needed to make known. He says make manifest, but I didn't think you'd know that. Make manifest to make known all that it is finished contains. All things have been done which the law of God required. All things established which prophecy predicted. All things brought to pass which the types foreshadowed. The type is just... Matt, Matt uh, talked about type last week when he was talking about Abraham and Isaac and they're going up the mountain and he was going to sacrifice. That was a type of Christ. It was a picture of something that was going to happen in the New Testament regarding Christ. And so when you talk about prophecy, there's also types. And there are many characters. You can buy whole books on the typology in the Bible. And they're, to me, they're fascinating. All things established which prophecy had predicted. All things brought to pass which the types foreshadowed. All things accomplished which the Father had given him to do. All through John. We've been in John a long time. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. The words he spoke were the, were the words of his Father. All things performed which were needed for our redemption. Nothing was left wanting. The costly ransom was given, the great conflict endured, sin's wages had been paid, divine justice satisfied. Let those words soak into you. See the magnificence of the gospel, the good news, the goodest good news on, on the history of the world. Rereading these words reminds me again why I disagree with Pastor Lee about Christmas. This is where Debbie and I had a, a discussion. And so I had to text him because I didn't want to misquote him, but I'm not quoting him. Pastor Lee loves Christmas. 
It is his favorite holiday, I think. And he texted me this morning. He said, I love Christmas so much, I put my tree up a day after Halloween. Or he said, I would if I could. I don't think Lindsay would have let him. Well, one time 30 years ago, maybe, I was asked at the last minute because the pastor had laryngitis to pray after one of the children's musicals up here. And I was young, you know, 30 or so. And I thought, great. Now your whole day is ruined because you have to pray afterwards, right? That's all you can think about. You're not even listening. And I came up, and my prayer was mistaken for the... He doesn't like babies. (laughs) Right? Because I said, or what I was trying to convey, was that we're now praying, in my closing prayer, to a risen Lord, Savior, and King, not the baby Jesus. That's true, right? In fact, I said, Christmas has zero significance if it wasn't for Easter. Zero significance. Except for Lee. (laughs) And if I were given the chance, I'd say the same prayer today. In fact, Christmas was never celebrated in the world until the 4th and 5th century A.D. Okay, put that in your noggin. In contrast, and you've heard me say this a thousand times since, I've, since you've known me, the newly converted and indwelt uh, new Christians, indwelt with, the, indwelt with the Spirit, they stopped going to synagogue, they stopped going, having Sabbath, and they started having probably home churches on, on they called Resurrection Sunday, because every Sunday is a re- celebration of the Resurrection. And I love that. When we're here, you know, we have Easter. Easter isn't a big deal for me. I'm glad we don't all wear bonnets and stuff. But Easter is not that significant because every Sunday is Easter for me. I love Easter that way, but I'll let you have it. Uh, Incidentally, uh, John and Mark don't mention the, the birth of Jesus, but all gospel writers mention the the passion of the Christ, you know, the death and the resurrection, the ascension. Anyway, Easter gets, to me gets shortchanged. A one-day celebration in contrast to singing carols the day after Thanksgiving or for Lee after Halloween. Uh, I mentioned to Debbie uh, when she was asking me about my, my message. This is before I rewrote it, but it was still kind of the same. She said, I always wondered why Good Friday is called Good Friday. That was a good question, right? You know, why is it called Good Friday? And I hadn't really given much, I hadn't pondered that much too, that much either. She got it that Jesus' death is arguably the most consequential event in history. And I, I asked myself, is that too extreme to say it that way? Because we really like the resurrection. Although that's not, an, that's not a visual aid for the resurrection. Is that, is that too provocative? This is an instrument of death. The Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it. Countless people were were, uh, crucified. There are accounts in things like, uh, I don't know, uh, I have have a series of books I inherited from Debbie's parents. What was it? Plutarch's Lives. And they were written around the first century. And they have accounts of, in Rome, having 125 miles of crucifixion every 10 meters for 120 miles to make a case and make a point to a marauding army or to slaves that escaped. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Matt did a great job portraying what resurrection is when you read it last week. And, I mean, excuse me, what uh, crucifixion is. And the, the word excruciating, we all know it. The last two times I read it, it said excruciating detail and excruciating boredom. And I thought, boy, they really missed the mark because excruciating means of the cross. It's a new word that they had to make up in Latin in order to convey the brutality of that kind of death. Excruciating, so excruciating boredom. Jesus wasn't bored. This this cross, one time when I was preaching, I said, you know, we could put a skateboard up there, because Jesus would be the greatest skateboarder in history. 
He invented the sport. He invented the whole world. He invented everything. You could put a set of blueprints up there because he made the universe. You could put almost anything up there, but we put a cross. And why is that? Because it's the number one icon. It's one, the number one icon in the history of the world, the most recognized. When people see the cross, most people know the name Jesus. They might not agree probably that he was resurrected, but they believe that he died on the cross. And it was a defeat, probably, for most people. A lot of different messiahs died in, in the Jesus, before Jesus' day. The reason that we are his ambassadors is because of those people who don't believe that he was resurrected and don't believe that he's the Messiah. To do this, we need to know how to share the hope that we have. That means we should be conversant, right? Be able to speak without notes. I'm using notes, but we should be conversant about his work of redemption. That we are forgiven, we are justified, we are assured of eternal life. And that hope is what the world wants. They don't know it, but that's the, that's the hope they want. They want forgiveness. He has taken away our sin and given us his righteousness. We no longer have to strive. Striving is the national pastime. Everybody's striving. Sometimes we do too. We don't have to be, we no longer have to be religious. If you look up the word religious in a good dictionary, not the internet, um, it'll say bound. It's bondage. Bound by normally ritual, those kinds of things. And so I tell people to shock them. My, my son says that my spiritual gift is uh, provocation. So I tell people I hate Christians, or I tell people I'm not religious, and they always think, well, I thought you are one, you know? So it gives you an opening, if they do ask, it gives you an opening. And I do love Christians, I just don't like most. Mm. Um, but we don't have to be religious. We don't, we're not religious people. We, we believe and we worship a, a person in Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him. We don't even have to invite people to church, which I know Matt will bristle at. He's, he's come back in, so I did. We, what if they say no? I think that we need to instead invite them into our lives and then love them, regardless of whether they agree with you on anything. Right? I think that's the picture of love we have. You know, Jesus' commandments are love each other, love God, love each other, and love others, you know, as, as you would treat the others as you would have them treat you. Um, and that's hard work. It's easy to love everybody. It's hard to love an individual. And we all, we all know that. It's hard to love each other. You know, we're all pathetic. We're all very needy. But God pro promises to provide us with the words, the grace, and the time in order to do that, and we just have to give that to Him. You know, we're so busy. I'm, I'm, I waste so much time, I would hate to tell you. Oh, and I know everybody's the same. A few weeks ago, I was in the parking lot of my old store, and we're looking for a new tenant, and we're going to redo the parking lot and the pavement. And there was a van parked in the back parking lot with its rear wheels up on jacks and the wheels missing. And I thought, oh, terrific, this is going to be helpful. Obviously, they can't leave. And I knocked on the door, and nobody came to the door. And so a couple days later, I went back and knocked on the door, and the man opened the door, old man, almost a little older than me, I guess, but he was an old man. And he was uh, angry. He hadn't yet gotten dressed. He has a bed in there. You could tell that he had been drinking probably just to stay warm. And I had prayed, and this is, this is, it's dangerous to say this is a true story as though everything else is not true, but it's for emphasis. It's a true story. I pulled up in the parking lot and I saw the van and I, I prayed to God, help me to extend to these people or this person the kindness of God. Give me a heart. Give me the lenses of Christ when I deal with this person because I can postpone doing the driveway, right? That's postponable. They may be in a dire need. So I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but you have to pray about those things in advance. And when I was in business, I used to, before I called difficult customers, I prayed to God before I called. And I had to pray for, pray for forgiveness afterwards. <laughs> Sometimes. So this gentleman, I, I learned, 
after going back to him a, a couple days later, and he was out of his van. He had a nice bicycle, and he was, he was pretty nicely dressed. He's homeless. He's 77 years old. He's from Afghanistan. Some, some have heard this story. Debbie read this. He said, well, a lot of people already know this story. And I said, how many know this story? Three. <laughs> Four. He's from Afghanistan. And it, it's a, actually a long story, but she told me to shorten it, so I will. He told me that he didn't need any help. I offered to help with his rear, the, the rear axle. He was replacing it. I said, I'd be happy to help you. I, I'm, I'm kind of a shade tree mechanic myself. He insisted that I don't help him, that he was fine, that he had a friend's son who could help him. Help him. And, and he was very cordial, and he was very kind to me, and he apologized for his first reaction to me. And so I inserted into the conversation, I said, well, Afghanistan, isn't that a Muslim country? And he said, yes. And I said, are you a Muslim? And he said, kind of with a sheepish grin, furrowed brow, head down, he said, being a Muslim is hard. He said, being a Muslim is hard. And I said, so you're a backsliding Muslim? <laughs> and he, go, he goes like this. And so I thought, ah, that's interesting. So I told, him, I told him, I said, well, I'm a Christian, and I go to a place that's FBC, which means freed by Christ to me, and that I don't have, I don't, it's not hard work, that the commandments of, the, of God are, are not burdensome. And I gave him a little bit of my testimony, and I said, you know, that's, that's so different than from Islam. And I wasn't putting down Islam, I was saying that, that you're right, it's hard work, it's a lot of work, it's hard. And... And Islam oftentimes is people who are born into it. Oftentimes people think they're Christians because they're not Jewish, you know, in the United States, right? We've all, we've all faced that. Anyway, so we've had conversations over the days. I told him he can stay as long as he wanted. He put a sign, a note on the, on the, on the windshield one time. Uh, Dear, Mr. Dear Mr. Freetwell, instead of with one E, Freetwell, thank you for your kindness. Uh, I, I, I hope to get out of here as soon as can so I don't, don't in, you know, interrupt your plans and you know, all that in perfect English. And we exchanged phone numbers and emails and uh, he, he, he's left a voicemail for me to say that he has left, left the property. What's that? Uh, who has left the building? What's that, what's that short? What's that song? Yeah. And, and I was really thrilled that he was. And he was heading up towards Petaluma, and he said he had an apartment, potentially apartment, available for him up there. So I, I'm ashamed that I haven't yet taken him to lunch. I promised I'd take him to lunch. I asked him if he wanted to go to church sometime with me, and he said he might. So that's still in cards. But anyway, his name was Ahmed, and he's a backsliding Muslim if you put them, want to pray for him. But anyway, I get a kick out of those kinds of things. I love those situations because they're so bizarre, but I know God is in it, and I'm so grateful that he... he he cautioned me to be careful on how you interact with people. So I did. And I'll never forget his words. Oh, I didn't tell you. I missed the whole point. After he said, Muslim is hard, Islam is hard, being a Muslim is hard, and I told him about Christ, he said, this is the, this is the drop the mic. I don't have a mic. He said, so Christianity is of the heart. Put his hand on his heart. It's not performative. Christianity is of the heart, not performative. Man, I almost cried. Because he got it. He nailed it on the head, right? And I, was, and I said, oh, I wrapped my arms around him. And when the gardeners came, I introduced them to him. And so when I drove away, they were all chatting together, you know. So uh, people love people. All you have to do is reach out to them, right? Did we greet the, greet the visitors today, Matt? Was that your job or mine? No. I was going to say, if I were the one, I'd say, I'm glad you're here, depending on if you're Yelp or not. Uh, but if you find us unfriendly, then put that aside and come back again and again and again. Because you can say that about any place. I did an experiment with a friend who said, everybody always talks to you. And I said, oh, uh, au contraire, I, I talk to people. Nobody ever talks to me. And I said, uh, next Sunday I'm going to stand out in the narthex and you watch and we'll see who comes and speaks to me. And nobody did. Nobody did. I said, I go up to people. That's the answer. My dad always said, you walk into a room, you go up to people and say, yeah, my name is Steve Fretwell. Right? 
Remember when I did that with you? Alex has a testimony about that. Uh, let's see. Let's move on. Oh. Anyway, I'll never forget. It's not performative. Let me say something provocative if I haven't already. Uh, Resurrection Sunday would not be significant without Good Friday in the same way that Christmas is not significant without Easter. Okay, Good Friday. Resurrection wouldn't be significant. Easter would not be significant without Good Friday. And I've always given a backseat to Good Friday. It was kind of just an awkward day that you go to the service and walk out kind of wearing a black shirt. Right? That's what, that, it's like Black Friday for me. So I never really had a good understanding, and I've been a Christian for forever. No doubt uh, next week Matt will have to pick up the pieces here, and also he may eventually, in a future sermon, get into the resurrection, because that's coming up. We're getting to the end of the, of the Gospel of John, and, and he'll do a, a yeoman job, yeoman-like job. But the resurrection, in my view, authenticates each of those truths that I read from Arthur Pink earlier of what Christ accomplished when he went to his death. And all those things are what give us the new life and give us the hope. The, and more hope comes with the resurrection. Imagine if Jesus had died on the cross, they took him down, they put him in the, uh, the new tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, right? And the tomb was empty, but nobody ever saw him. That's what, the, that's what the Romans were afraid of. Let's put a big stone and a seal and guards because they might take him and then pretend that he was resurrected. But what if we never saw him, even if he was resurrected in fact, but he, we never saw him? Paul addresses that. He said, you know, if we didn't know that, then of all people, we, our faith would be the most pitiable. Because if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then our resurrection is meaningless as well. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. So the resurrection is important and if we never saw him, well, I never saw him resurrected. I'm trusting somebody else's eyewitness, right? So are you. But the eyewitness accounts abound. I read one time that said the resurrection of Christ, there's more evidence for it than the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in terms of manuscript evidence. Fascinating, isn't it? We don't take that. You know, who'd ever think that's not true? Mikey. So, if that's not the symbol of resurrection, and I say that because all crosses ultimately are empty. All those tens of thousands are empty eventually. Either someone takes the body down or the, or the animals get it. So, that has to be a different symbol. It has to be the symbol of, of, of Friday, Good Friday. I used to complain to the Catholics that I know, hey, you always leave Jesus on the cross. And that's wrong. I need to repent of that. You know, the repent only means change your mind about someone or something. It's not a religious word. Change your mind about someone or something. I tell people that all the time. I say, well, you're, you don't need to repent your, of your sins. Don't bristle. You need to change your mind about who Jesus' word is because when you come to terms with who Jesus is, the repentance of your sins comes automatically because you get into God's word and you find out this is what the life in Christ looks like and this is how I'm saved and this is, this is what he did for me. And you'll just you'll, you'll cry. I... So I think that the symbol of, bapt of uh, the resurrection is our baptism. We only have two ordinances, right? And they're right here. Baptism and the cross that we celebrate in communion. I'm happy about that. I, I used to go to Debbie's Episcopal Church. It was a high church. All the flowing robes. and I didn't even know when to sit down or stand up. And they always had their mantras, you know. So you always felt like an outsider. So I'm glad that we, we only have the two ordinances. And for those of you who haven't been baptized, I encourage you to, to think about that because it is the picture of you dying to, dying to the world and to yourself and rising again up out of the water, out of the watery grave to new life in Christ. And there's something about that that's, that's pretty precious. And, and Jesus commands it too. On Easter Sunday, we have a traditional um, exchange. What is it? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Everybody knows it. I've known that, right? Even when I went to a church that didn't proclaim Christ, they said that. He is risen indeed. Maybe next year's Good Friday evening service, we can start a new tradition 
Indeed, would be, it is finished. It is finished indeed. Hey, you're lousy. Finished indeed, right? <laughs> Lastly, and I'm done, uh, you'll think this is an odd way to end, I think. There's a book I want to recommend. I don't recommend books often because there's too many books and I haven't read a lot of books to know, you know, who am I? But there's one book that changed my life apart from the Bible. And I was happy when Matt came. When I was in his office, I could see that book in his shelf. And I said, hey, don't you love that book? He said, that's a great book. And I mentioned it to Ron Garcia today. I said, I'm going to talk, I'm going to mention you today. And I just did. I gave him that book and he still says, that's the best, where is he? Best book you ever read? Okay. And I mention it because it's, it's called Knowing God, and it's written by a, a gentleman named J.I. Packer. He uses his initials because his name's James Inell, you know. It's like Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis. I'm S.A. Fretwell because I'm Stephen Arthur, but I wouldn't want to be called S.A., you know. But it's Knowing God. It was written in 1973, and the book has significance for me because man was given to me by a woman, a dear sister in Christ, who was the wife of a man that I called on when I was, I was working for Ford Motor out of Denver, and I traveled to Wyoming and Montana, and they were in Wyoming, and I was at dinner at their house, and she gave me this book, and she said, you need to read this. It's a declaration. It's a, it, was a, it was an order, actually. You need to read this book. It's going to change your life. It's the most important book I've ever read next to Scripture. And I took it. And I read it, and I ended up changing jobs, ended up quitting my job. I was away from Debbie five nights a week, five days a week, weekend and work, weekend and week out. And she'd be home by herself. We didn't have any children yet. And I think she was trying to, trying to tell me, you know, that may not be the most healthy thing for you every week, all year long. You're gone. And the problem was that I went to the office on Saturday to get caught up on my mail, and on Sunday I got, had to go in to get ready for my next trip. So I was, it was a horrible life. And so she told me, read this book, and I did. And I've tried to reread it uh, every year since. And I've given out dozens of copies to people. Ron, one of them. And I'm going to make this offer. It's available online. If you buy it and don't like it, I'll buy it from you. And I'll give it away. And the reason this book comes to mind in this sermon is because what Packer talks about, he writes beautifully about what Christ accomplished uh, by his death, and he lists these things, in his, if you look at his table of contents, basically. Justification, reconciliation, regeneration, mediation, forgiveness, propitiation, substitution, etc., etc. Uh, I'm playing Wordle with my sister's online and we share what we do. You know, it's not really competitive. It's mostly just a banter back and forth. But I, I sent them a list of words that some columnist had written. He said, well, if Wordle wanted to really uh, freak people out, here's 20 words that are five letters long that they should use. So I sent them to my sisters. I knew two of the words. They didn't know any of them. And they said, I wouldn't even play if those words were presented because we're simpletons. That's what they said. And I said, you're not simpletons. You know these words. I, I wrote to him, do you know what justification means? Reconciliation, regeneration, forgiveness, substitution, propitiation. Of course they do. They're, they're sisters in Christ as well as my sisters. And I said, you're not simpletons. This is deep, heavy, important stuff. And if you're put off by those kinds of words, that's what they use in the Bible. That's what Paul talks about. And you, can, you don't have to use them with other people. I, when I talk about propitiation, I just tell people it's the sad, it's the, it's the the sacrifice that satisfied God, the, sac the sacrifice that provided atonement. It's funny, when you look up propitiation, part of the definition is atonement. You look up atonement, part of the definition is another complicated word. So you kind of have to do, <laughs> deal with that on your own, on your, in your own way. So my last word to you is, if these things are well understood, your soul will be thrilled, your faith will be hardened, your worship will be deepened, and your prayer life will be refreshed. Enough said. It is finished. Uh, thank you for your attention. Debbie 
and I have a 47th anniversary on Tuesday, so we're getting out of here today uh, to avoid tar and feathering uh, <laughs> because we, we need to go down to San Diego. So let me, uh, let me close with a brief prayer. <sighs> Father, thank you for being who you are, being a God who knows all, who loved us, made us, knew our names before we were even conceived. That sounds like balderdash, Father, to the people who have not yet been drawn in, who think that the universe is a wonderful place, but they don't know what happened there. They're looking into black holes, but there's not going to be any satisfaction there. There'll be an increase in knowledge, but no increase in the personally true depths, and that's the depths of knowing you. Thank you that we don't just know of you, but we know you personally because of the Holy Spirit in us. Thank you for sending Jesus, who was a real person and who, who wept and was thirsted and cried, had compassion on people, performed miracles and not magic tricks, was always serving, and died a painful death because he was fully human. Excruciating, excruciating crucifixion for us, for our sins, not for the sins of the world, for our sins, past, present, and future. Help us, Lord, to be people who want to live in a, a holy life and not, not those who want to sin more because there'll be more grace, as Paul addresses. He says, he basically says, hell no, that's not true. We can't sin more so that grace will abound. We need to live holy lives. So help us to go from here and put on the, the glasses, the lenses of Christ, and see people differently because of our relationship. For those who don't know Christ yet, I pray that this will have been something that uh, would encourage you. And if you buy the book, I'll pay you for it, even if you don't give it back. All sincerity. And I pray these things in the matchless neighbor, neighbor, name of our Savior and Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.